Welcome to the Efficient Private Clients podcast, where we delve into the intricacies of the financial world and bring you the latest market and economic expertise. Today, we are looking at China. Where do they fit in in the world economy and what does it hold for the future? I'm Kyle Poppy, an investment specialist at Efficient Private Clients and your host for today. We're joined in studio by Renier Fransel, one of our portfolio managers. Renier, we know China to be the powerhouse that they are today and the second most powerful country in the world. Has this always been the case? And if not, how did they get to this point? Yes, so Carl, first of all, thanks for having me. No really problem appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, no, China hasn't always been this powerhouse that we know it as today. Um, more than a century ago, when the Communist Party took over, uh, China was dealing with extreme poverty, mm. like extreme, extreme poverty. You didn't have, you know, the mega cities and the manufacturing hubs and, you know, the, the strong labor force that you have today. Um, you didn't even have it for the next 50 years, from the 1920s to the 1970s. In the 1960s, whilst the US was sending a guy to the moon, um, China was dealing with widespread hunger you know, yes. throughout yeah. the whole process. They were complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, absolutely. Both were growing, but we're, both were dealing with <laughs> legacy issues. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, when your problem is how do we get to the moon and your problem is how do you feed your people, yes. you, you're having different problems. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you choose? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, and, but, it, but it was all because of you know, bad policies in agriculture by the current leaders. And yes. that, that basically continued up until the mid-1970s okay. when um, Mao Zedong passed away and Deng Xiaoping took over. And he reversed a lot of those policies, okay. replaced new things. So they empowered farmers, they gave away land, you know, yes. they eradicated parts of poverty and really killed off that widespread hunger. Um, and then things started to go well. You know, yes. Dong Xiaoping is considered the reason why China is what it is today. He's, yeah. he's not getting enough credit for what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, he made the movement. Exactly. And he, he even made the move of allowing Western companies into China in the late 1970s. Yeah. He opened the doors essentially to the manufacturing hub we have today. He did. You know, the, the world wanted cheap labor and China wanted technology. You know, so. They allowed U.S. companies to set up shops next to the Chinese companies and entrepreneurs. Mm. And you had this flow of technology and intellectual property yes, going yes. through. And the sharing of resources between All the them. Yeah, you, you can't become a powerhouse on your own. No, right? definitely so, not. Yeah. They leveraged each other quite well. Definitely. But it was an experiment. You know, they br- did break China up into different areas and they did experiment in one region. And if that worked, they rolled it out into the next one. You know, Dong Xiaoping didn't have this blueprint of how yes. the country will look in 20, 30 years from now. And I think that, that what, that's what make it, makes it so, so impressive. Yes. Is that visionary? You know, how, how do you achieve that? Mm. Now, it was an experiment. I understand that. Yeah. But it's impressive. But he also mitigated risks by doing that, by creating the silo system. You exactly. know, if one sector failed, he could kind of scrap it. And his other nine sectors were still doing reasonably well. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I think it was very clever to, to do that. Yeah, it's all about empowerment, right? So, so in the 1980s and 1990s, you had this exponential growth mm. in China. And then by the early 2000s, um, China inter, uh, joined the World Trade Organization. Yes. And they started to export a lot of these cheap products that were made by this one billion plus people. Yeah, they globalized. They globalized into the rest of the world. And I think that's also when uh, main globalization, you know, really started to take off. Mm. Um, because 
because all of a sudden, you know, people were play, playing with Made in China toys with yes. their cars and their action figures, and parents were happy. They didn't pay top dollar for those toys anymore. Yeah, they yeah. paid a quarter in the 2000s. And yeah, especially as South Africans, toys got amazingly cheap for a good period of my childhood. Exactly. Not that much. Exactly. Oh, so not, not only did you have McDonald's, you also had a nice toy for exactly, McDonald's. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, throughout all of this, China essentially, um, you know, the, the world became optimistic on China. They thought China will become a democracy, as okay. you saw in South Korea, where, yes, yes. where they were under dictatorship, but once exports started to take over, they were able to, to take break off, away. They were able to, to break away. They, were, they, they became a free democracy. Mm. In China, that wasn't the case. They stayed under political control. So in China, they implemented a blend between state-directed capitalism and um, political authoritarianism. Yeah. So the Chinese government decided who did they want to boost you know, in the economy, yes, yes. who did they want to make it billionaire. Yeah, they gave, gave them the sickle and kept them under the hammer. Definitely, <laughs> what, exactly. Yeah. What sectors did they want to um, empower? You know, they, they owned the, the key yes. to the economy at the end of the day. And as manufacturing started to take off, a lot of jobs were created, a lot of poor people receive better salaries in mm. the cities than opposed to the farms. Yeah. So they moved from the rural areas, the farms, to the cities and the urban areas. And that really drove the property market, which in turn drove the construction industry. Yes. And today it's 30% of GDP. So it yeah. contributed a lot to ultimately China got uh, some, some kind of middle class. Exactly. And that, that's also what, what helped to lift 800 million people out of yeah. extreme poverty. Massive amounts. Massive amounts. It's crazy to think that you can move that amount of people. It is. <laughs> but on another front, we know that they're now kind of succeeding, they're doing a lot better, but China needs to keep on innovating in order to stay ahead. What is their strategy and, and what is some of the risks involved? Of course. Yeah, so, so let's start with the risks okay. before we address the solutions. Um, you know, the, the aging population in China is a massive problem. In the 1980s, they had this one-child policy. Yeah, um, and, they, and the Chinese culture as a whole has always had a somewhat one-child policy. If it's not a boy, that also hurt things. Exactly. Yeah, that, yes, that was a big problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so so, so this, this one-child policy essentially led to uh, a drastically aging population. Yes. You had a lot of people exiting the workforce over the last seven, eight years. Hmm. Um, fewer people entering the workforce because of that. That's why they also relaxed the one-child policy and they want more people again. Yes. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you also had a, a problem with productivity and with the amount that people were paid. You had hmm. a, a smaller workforce. So people were paid more, and what drove China over the last two decades was cheap labor. So yes, you didn't yes. have that anymore. All of a sudden, you had that in India, you know, or even the U.S. can manufacture stuff more cheaply. Mm. Um, and you know that that was that was a, a massive massive problem. You also had the younger people looking after the older people, which also had an impact on productivity at the end of the day. Yes, yes. So China must. You know, they must find ways around this and must find ways to become more productive, firstly. You know, if a lot of people aren't going to join the workforce immediately. Um, and then also you had the pandemic, which accelerated this work from home movement. Yes. So yes. you didn't have the amount of people migrating to cities anymore. People no. can stay on the farm, look after their parents and work. Yes. And that, that's somewhere that's going to weigh on the construction market and the property market. And you're already seeing it, you know, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Yeah, I suppose outside of manufacturing and, and physical labor, most of those people, if they could work off a laptop or a cell phone, they did exactly that. Yeah, why laptop, wouldn't you? Laptop, cell phone, and stop paying rents. 
move back home, look after your parents at the same time. Absolutely. Win, win, win for, for them. You know? I know. I mean, look at how, how we have accepted this work yes. from home environment. All of a sudden, you don't sit in traffic anymore. Right? Yeah, I mean, a lot we can, more hybrid jobs these days. A lot more hybrid jobs, exactly. It's almost one of the criteria before you join a company. But, yes. Um, yeah, so moving then on to the solutions, you know, mm. how the Chinese government are very uh, cognizant yes. of the problems and aware of the problems. So every single five years, they've got a new five-year plan. They're now mm. on the 14th plan, where they essentially want to have a more moderately prosperous society. They don't want people to be too rich, because if you're too rich, you become lazy. Yes. That weighs on productivity. You see that with every single up-and-coming nation at the end of the day. Um, they want to essentially boost the middle-income class, create jobs in services, focus on renewable energy, focus on technology, etc. Mm. But that's a five-year plan. Yes. What's a longer-term plan? They've got two big long-term plans. One being the Made in China 2025 okay. um, initiative that they joined, that they uh, set in place in 2015. Mm. So under that, by 2049, they've identified 10 industries, tech. Uh, greenification, robotics, um, you go AI, you go down the list. Yeah, all modern sectors. All modern sectors. And in those sectors, uh, at least 70% of all the components used there must be manufactured in China. In China. Okay. Now, this is not unique to China. You're seeing no. it in the Western countries as well. I mean, yes, yes. In the Almost US. like a comparison. So theirs is made in China. The US had Make America Great Again during the, the Trump administration. Exactly. It's exactly. becoming a lot more popular to exactly. internalize as much as possible. Yes, and it, that's actually where it started. It started under Trump. Yeah. You know, you, you realize this, where one of these days they won't have the necessary semiconductor components that they mm. need or the earth materials that are used in that. Yes, and that's yes. why it started to become so aggressive towards China. I think you also realized there was a massive need for Chinese resources or Chinese production. Absolutely. And they tend to fight relatively yeah. often. So if you have a bad enough fight and suddenly China's gone, Absolutely. what then? But that's also what a previous colleague of mine, um, or a previous colleague, what, what a colleague of mine mentioned is uh, with Ray Dalio's book, The Changing World Order. Yes. You, know, you have that when you have an up and coming uh, power mm. that challenges an existing power yeah. that's on the decline. Yeah, kind of feisty. Somewhere, something's going to give, whether yes. it's military, whether it's in the economy itself, something's going to give. Yes, yes. But, but coming back to the discussion is that, you know, China, the US, for example, mm. is now under the CHIP Act, bringing a lot more manufacturing back. Yes, the likes yes. of Intel, likes of Samsung, Taiwan Semiconductor mm. is a big, big uh, sensitive topic. You know, the China is trying to gain control over Taiwan, yeah. but Taiwan's a big partner with the US. And Taiwan manufactures 90% plus of yes. all advanced semiconductors. So no wonder these countries are fighting like yes, they are. Yes, yeah. But hopefully over the longer term it can create jobs and um, productivity within China. And then the second one is the One Belt, One Road project, okay. where under this project they want to link Southeast Asia with Europe. They want to create a new Silk Road. So go, okay. go and read the new Silk Road. That yes, book yes. Is, is exceptional. It's quite long, but it's quite good. Mm. Um, and you'll see if these new trading routes and partners are established, it's usually very, very good for a country. It yes. boosts them, you know, their, their significance in the global hierarchy. And um, it's not it's not going to be smooth sailing. You know, it's no. going to cost them a trillion dollars. So they need to find the financing. They're going to partner with countries, countries like Pakistan, Zambia, Ghana, that have yes, already yes. got debt problems and issues. So it's not going to be 
clear cut. But yeah. the Chinese government is aware of it, and I think you know we should give them the benefit of the doubt just based on what they've achieved in yes, the past. Yes, yes, yeah, they have been successful, and um, yeah, when you mention Silk Road, it sounds like they're quite literally trying to pave the way into this new economic environment. Absolutely. That's well Thank said. you so much. Thank you, Carl. Makes perfect sense.